Hello, you're listening to Q Talk Radio. I'm your host, Xavier Mejia. Q Talk Radio is a program of the San Gabriel Valley LGBTQ Center. For more information on this episode and past episodes, please visit qtalkradio.com. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Eduardo Lara, a 20-year-old educator and recognized expert in teaching, learning, and urban education who has announced his candidacy to replace board member John McGinnis, who has announced that he will not seek re-election. Dr. Eduardo Lara lives in Long Beach, uh, the third district, with his husband and has been engaged, an engaged resident of the district for over a decade. Dr. Eduardo Lara served as middle school teacher for LAUSD, director of urban education, with a master's degree program from Loyola Marymount University, Associate's Director of Youth Empowerment and Research Seminar at Pe- Pepperdine, and the Director of Research and Evaluation for Health Literacy Project. Dr. Lada earned his bachelor and master's degree from the George Washington University and his PhD in education from UCLA. He is currently a social, social, social sociologist of education at Cal State Long Beach. Please help me welcome to the show, Dr. Eduardo Lara. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me, Xavier. And I, I wish I was 20 years old. I've been a 20-year <laughs> educator um, and 39, but don't I wish I was still 20 years old? Well, um, yeah, that, that said, welcome to the show. It's been uh, great knowing you for, for many years now, um, your husband as well. I'm excited to have you on as a guest and to really talk about, you know, who you are, letting our listeners know more about your history mm-hmm. and why you decided to run for the board seat for Long Beach Unified. So let's first start with getting to know a little, a little bit about you. Um, I know you were born and raised in Santa Ana, went through schools there. What was that like for you? What was, um, tell us about growing up in Santa Ana and, and your family and a little bit about who you are. Well, I have a lot of uh, orgullo or pride from being from Santana, California, uh, born and raised and uh, had my K through 12 schooling there for the most part. There was a couple of years where I was actually out in Lakewood uh, for, for a bit, for about three years, but for the most part uh, in Santana and thoroughly enjoyed my community, very proud of those roots. Uh, but simultaneously growing up, uh, I, I, I noticed things, you know, even as a kid, you may not have the language. Uh, to our fully articulate, um, you know, school inequalities. But growing up, I did uh, experience some of those inequalities. You know, I remember at one point um, I was in seventh grade, and for an entire year, we instead of doing uh, life science in that class, we did crossword puzzles oh. for an entire year. And uh, those memories stick stick uh, with someone, and in this case, it stuck with me. So that's just one of many examples that that I can pick up on throughout my childhood, and just kind of knowing, you know what, education needs to have a sense of rigor, and um, um, and that uh, memory coupled with many more memories have really stuck with me. And now, as a researcher, scholar, and community activist, I, I really make it a point to advocate on behalf of youth to ensure that they have a quality education. I surmise that part of the reason you're passionate is also about education is because, um, you know, your mom's also someone that works 
within the school system. Mm -hmm. So you've seen the school system um, both as a product of the school system and now as an educator. Can you share with us uh, more about your values in education? How did you become aware about the difference that was needed? I know you spoke about becoming aware of it, but, you know, how did who or what allowed you to Mm -hmm. see that there was a gap there? Um, How did that become important to you and why did you seek to fill that gap? Uh, well, let me address first. I'm glad you mentioned my mother, um, and, and really, it's a testament to both my mother and father in terms of why I am so uh, invested in education. Uh, my mom has worked for Santa Ana Unified School District for 25 years now, um, and she worked um, in the cafeteria of one of the local middle schools. And at a very young age, I remember my mom. Um, Uh, sitting down to learn English in front of PBS. Mm. And I was very young at the time. At at that point, I think there were only three of us, maybe four of us. I come from a family of five. And so five siblings. And so my my mother, you know, organically would also have us watch uh, PBS and uh, learn English along the way. And those are very powerful memories. And my dad, I also remember taking adult classes in his uh, own you know, journey to learn English. Um, and so I think those seeds were planted very young in terms of thirsty for more education. Um, in terms of my advocacy work, it, again, it's really experiential knowledge at first, going through the education pipeline and knowing that at certain points you had really amazing teachers that helped me out, but then at the same time, knowing that there were education gaps throughout the pipeline. So by the time I made it to college, I went to George Washington University. Um, I recognized from freshman year that there were some uh, areas of my, of my knowledge that um, needed some development. And so I kicked butt that freshman year in college. And uh, uh, as I was learning about the field of sociology, I majored in criminal justice in the sociology department um, and a minor in political science. I, those fields really opened up uh, uh, my mind to how uh, in how many injustices there are with respect to education, and that fueled a fire in my belly to uh, go into this particular career, education, education policy, and advocacy, um, and really education in many, many different contexts, from uh, kindergarten through middle school, high school, and now uh, teaching, uh, having taught graduate students and now undergraduates. So you speak about having seeds that were planted mm-hmm. by both your parents. Um, you spoke about learning English through PBS, you know, mm-hmm. having seen that uh, through your mother. And, and also just really um, you spoke about being in school yourself and, and valuing higher education and, and really why sociology is important to you. Mm. Um, as you were growing up, did you ever think you would be talking about sociology now? And and um, and what does it feel like to have so much insight and be able to share that with others? I I, I can't say that I'd be thinking about sociology when I was a kid. I don't even know that existed as a word, as a concept, as an idea. But I think that as a young kid. And I by no means was alone in in this. Uh, We were speaking in our own way, in our own words, right, Uh, like sociologists. Um, One poignant example of this is when I was in high school, 
had a really, really good friend of mine, Peter Cervantes. He, uh, he shared with me um, uh, the field of Chicano, Latino, Latinx now, and Chicanx studies. Uh, again, very, very organically, though, he uh, mentioned how there was a bookstore in Santana, uh, Martinez Bookstore, and how he had been visiting that store for quite some time. And one day after school, we ended up going over there and he introduced me to the owner, um, Ruben Martinez. And a little uh, insight in him, he's uh, at that point, former barber, opened up a bookstore in downtown Santana and purposely cultivated uh, Latino, Latina, Chicano, Chicana oriented books. And unfortunately, we didn't have much access to that type of books in uh, high school. You would think it would make sense to, to have that type of connection to schools because the majority of the district was uh, Latino, Chicano, uh, Latina, and so forth. But we didn't. And uh, when we went to that bookstore, it was like a whole new world opened up to me. And I remember that Peter lent me his copy of Always Running. Um, and when I read that, I read that with such thirst and such energy. I think I read that within a day or two days, if that, and it made such an influence in my particular life. Although the, I believe that book talks about the Southgate community, if memory serves correct, I think there was a lot of overlap with the Santana community down in Orange County. And uh, that allowed for me to have a more of a critical look of social, uh, economic, and racial inequalities in, 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 in your own backyard. And as someone that, that's involved, who is involved with curriculum, curriculum development. How do you take those experiences and put them into curriculum? Absolutely. I always teach from the standpoint of intersectionality, uh, meaning more specifically that when I have a textbook or when I have a reading or when I have, first of all, in the selection making process, ensuring that the point of views discussed in a reading selection come from historically marginalized groups. Um, too often, curriculum that originates from that point of view isn't necessarily adopted widely. And uh, I think it starts from the selection making process. And then after the selection making process, assigning those readings to uh, your students and then having some often very tough conversations about inequality issues. In my particular case, um, and not only do my identities help me, to make those connections, but my research also helps me in teaching about intersectional issues. What is it like to be uh, openly gay, uh, Chicano, of course, um, and growing up in uh, working class, really a community where for me, growing up in poverty, and I'm very candid with that. I think for me, it's very important to be candid about how those experiences shape who I am today and what those experiences can do in terms of offering insight into the learning process for students, especially in a sociological and a teaching and learning context. I will say that uh, on a personal note, knowing you, um, having spent time with, with you, I would say that all of what you just said really comes through. I, I really feel that when I'm with you, um, that I hear you speak very openly about your upbringing, about your identity <clears throat> as a queer man, as a Latino, as a Latinx, as a person who, you know, values education, who grew up, <clears throat> you know, um, in a working class family, um, being first generation. I mean, all those things come through very well. And I think 
it shows your passion and um you know um goodness i have a little like itching my throat sorry about that um that being said i i i'd always i'm always left with wanting to know why why are you this way you know why are you so curious you know um and, and i love that and admire that about you because i think it also causes me to then go deeper down the rabbit hole, ask the bigger questions, mm. and not stay complacent and want to foster um, my own learning and my own identity or identities because <clears throat> it's not that's not how I think naturally or, mm. or, or um, firsthandedly. Mm-hmm. So through you, I'm inspired to ask bigger questions. You know, um, and in front of me, I have this this book that. Uh, the title is Confronting Racism in Teacher Education, Counter Narratives of Critical Practice. And you contributed um, a chapter in, in this book. And I see that it, the title reads, Ew, why are you wearing a pink shirt, mister? How a kindergartner led, led me to complicate, to complicate racial justice teaching by Eduardo Lara. Um, what what can you share with our listeners about this answer about this writing? What inspired you to contribute, and what's the story about? Well, absolutely, I'd love to chime in here. Um, so, first of all, shout out to the editors of this amazing contribution to the field of teacher education, uh, colleagues Bree Pekawer and Rita Coley. Um, my my idea came about because I wanted to ensure that. Uh, intersectionality was front and center in discussions of racial justice. I understand wholeheartedly when we're talking about issues of, of, of racial inequality that you want to, of course, you know, uh, point out uh, racial discrimination, racism. Uh, but it's also important to see how that uh, system of power intersects with other systems of power, such as uh, homophobia, or my preference to say that is heterosexism. And uh, I decided to use a, a, a story. You know, I'm a big fan of storytelling. I get that from my abuelita, my grandmother, who has really instilled in her own way how stories really motivate uh, people and inspire people. And if you don't mind, maybe I'll share just the beginning piece from, the, from this. It's not too long. Absolutely. And then kind of a, a expand from that. And I think this beginning piece really kind of speaks for itself. Uh, soy Nepantlero. I am Nepantlero. I exist in between worlds. Before spring break, I introduced a bright, inquisitive Chicana student to Ansaldua's work, La Frontera, Borderlands, during office hours. I advised her to read it so she can use some of the ideas in the book to write her paper on gender and carwasheros, car wash workers. She read the book I lent her over spring break and even shared the Spanish passages with her mom, inspiring an organic pedagogy of the home to transpire between madre e hija, mother and daughter, Beautiful. She returned to the book to me, expressing that she was going to buy her own copy. I returned it right back to her as a gift and let her know that I have another copy at home. And my partner at the time, now husband, has a copy. So really, I'm a walking Ansaldua library. I hand out books as if I were a paletero, an ice cream vendor, con campanas y todos. Libros, libros, with bells and everything, books, books. Immediately after our meeting, I walked over to the student union for lunch and ran into Chicano parents congregating for their own lunch. I couldn't just ignore fellow people that looked like my parents, tios, tias, abuelitos, y abuelitas. 
especially because I've never seen a critical mass of brown parents on campus before. Buenas tardes, ¿cómo están? Bienvenidos a Long Beach. Y así empezamos a platicar. That's how we chatted it up. Turns out they were parents from a migrant family education program that provides information on college access. I gave them my contact info should they ever need help on campus. I returned to my office to find another student, this time a white student who was waiting for me with a look I am all too familiar with. The look of a student that communicates, oh crap, I'm about to come out. Indeed, what transpired were heartful words acknowledging his sexuality and confiding with me the challenges of being gay. I made sure to let the student know that he's normal and assured him of the safe space he has with me. Nepantla, the in-between. Queer, brown, Chicano feminist, all helping me be a better educator outside the classroom, inside, and in between. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing with that with us. Um, beautiful. Um, where can we get a copy of this? Okay, it's available via Amazon. Um, there's a link on, um, I, I posted a link on my personal page. Um, so my personal page, page on Instagram is the Brown Guys Bike. Uh, reason being, I've, I've done the AIDS life cycle with my husband. Um, and so that inspired that Instagram um, panhandle. Wonderful. Um, you know, as we're speaking about your, your Instagram handle, I want to make sure that um, I let listeners know that if they have any questions about um, you know, your, your background, your experience, your dedication, and the universities you've attended. We've included that on this bio for this episode, but you also have a website, and it's eduardo4education.com, and it's the letter, uh, the, the word spelled out for, not the number for. Exactly, but, exactly. Um, uh, uh, you know, eduardo4education.com, and, you know, as you were reading from the book, it caused me to re to remember that I have this question that I thought, well, who can I ask this to? And you're like the you're the perfect guest to ask this. That there's a, a new trend, and perhaps trend is not the the right word. A, a movement to bring uh, dual language education or programming to school. Mm. Uh, I have a nephew who started school this past year, and didn't grow up speaking Spanish, but all of a sudden, he, this Christmas, everything was, that was coming out of his mouth was Spanish mm-hmm. because he's in a, in a dual language mm-hmm. uh, program. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about the, the movement behind getting dual language programs into our school system, and why is that important? Well, I, I think given the sheer diversity of not only our immediate local society, but just in general as a world, we, 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 there's so many different languages and cultures and backgrounds, and it only makes pedagogical sense that we prepare our, our students to engage with, uh, with, uh, with speakers of various languages. So for me, when I look at bilingual or multilingual education, it's really a movement back to historically where there was a point in California where those programs were more widely available. And unfortunately, and if memory serves correct, it's Proposition 227. There were like three back-to-back propositions, 187, 209, and 227. And sometimes I get all those numbers, but I'm pretty certain it was Proposition 227 that um, for all intents and purposes really 
uh, some say banned bilingual education, but it was really scaled back access to bilingual education in the 90s. And, uh, um, and now we have legislation, uh, rightfully so, that has created more access to bilingual education. And that, me that makes so much sense. I mean, from, from a social justice standpoint, if you have uh, kids whose native language is something other than, than English, it makes sense to continue their education in their native language as they're learning the, the English language. Um, most folks who are bilingual speak in both languages anyway. In the case of um, uh, Latinos, Latinos, Latinx who speak um, Spanish, you really are growing up in a Spanglish household. And um, that also needs to be affirmed within our communities. And I think one of the misconceptions is that a teacher who, like you said, grew up in a bilingual home, all of a sudden could just teach Spanish curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so these programs are actually much more um, developed and curated. And mm -hmm. so it's not, you know, you don't have a, a teacher that's hasn't gone through some training. To no, teach. no. A, a teacher would have to have authorization from the state of California, uh, 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 specifically the BCLAD, the Bilingual Cross-Cultural Language and Academic Development credential that's added, usually added to their existing credential, and in some cases, you know, simultaneously as they're as they're um, earning uh, their credential, and that uh, license, if you will, or here in California, you call it credential. Um, allows uh, a teacher to uh, teach in bilingual settings. Uh, but that credential is so important because um, it also prepares them with the right research-based methodologies to be effective in a bilingual setting. And it's also important to note that bilingual classrooms have so many different models. I myself taught in a dual language immersion program, and that model basically uh, has students learning one language in this context, English, for about half the day. And then the other language, in this case Spanish, for the second half of the day. And even within dual language programs, there are many different models and iterations of dual language programs. But that's the program that I work on, a 50-50 model. You know, I'm not an expert on the subject, but one of the things I do that stands out to me that I read was that um, these programs definitely help broaden a lexicon for, for students in both languages. So, mm -hmm. so they benefit not only that they're learning, mm -hmm. you know, Spanish for, for non-speaking Spanish speakers, but that also helps their English um, expand. Um, I'm going to, I want us to, I want to play a song mm -hmm. and then, so we can take a short break. And then when we're back, I want to make sure that we talk about your, story your 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 life that starts in long beach mm -hmm. and, and then kind of get to talking about why you're running for the seat in long beach does that sound good excellent excellent okay so we're going to play los aires del mayeb by la voz de oro Somebody. 
Today we're in a conversation with Dr. Eduardo Lara, and you were just listening to Los Aires de Mayeb by La Voz de Oro. Welcome back, Eduardo. Dr. Eduardo Lara, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. So good. So before we went on to the music break, we were talking about uh, the dual immersion language programs. We, we spoke a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, family values, seeds that were planted, uh, that you went to school um, on the East Coast, and that you're running for office in Long Beach. So let's get, in, let's get into talking about Long Beach. How did you decide to move to Long Beach? What, what took you to Long Beach? That's actually an interesting story. I was living in Los Angeles um, in 2004, teaching, um, and I was also visiting my family and friends in Santana a lot, and that was a lot of driving from, you know, working at the school um, and doing what I had to do in Los Angeles, driving down to Santana. I reached a point where I'm like, you know what, I need a nice, happy medium. This is a lot of driving, and at, the, at, the, at that point, I didn't know a whole lot about Long Beach. I knew where it was located. I'd gone there a couple times. Back in my day, there was a great salsa club called Mariposas in downtown Long Beach, but that was the extent of it. Um, and I decided to take a gamble. I went down to Long Beach, found a house to rent, and uh, uh, my sister and I actually co-rented the place. Uh, within a few months, we decided we really love Long Beach, bought a house, and what was supposed to be a six-month to one-year, you know, temporary move has turned into not only 12 years of living in Long Beach, but very much immersed in the community, grounded in the community, and a city that I'm proud to call home. When you speak about community, what does that community look like to you? What does it represent? And tell us a little bit about your involvement. Okay. 
Well, one of my uh, one of my bragging points about Long Beach is the sheer diversity of Long Beach. Uh, I mean, you have folks from all walks of life, and not only are we talking about racial diversity, but sexual orientation and sexual identity and gender identity. I think Long Beach is one of those hubs where you're just drawing from so many different contexts. And so when I walk out of uh, my neighborhood, I, I, I I'm constantly meeting people. Um, that uh, engage me even in my own thinking because when you interact with people that are different from you, you are exposed to other points of view and other identities. And I think that's just a sheer asset within, within Long Beach. And it's also easy to get to, right? There's mm-hmm. the blue line. You can take the 605. You can take the 710. I mean, it's Quite accessible. And you can fly in, right? <laughs> we have a local airport. It's like a beautiful airport. Yeah. And, and I think when people think about Long Beach, they think about the Spruce Goose. I don't know. That's gone, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Spruce Goose. Yeah, that was long a while ago. But uh, that's how growing up yeah, right. in the San Gabriel Valley, that's how I knew Long Beach because because of the Spruce mm-hmm. Goose and the Queen Mary. Yep. Uh, but the Queen Mary's still there. Yeah, and Queen Mary's there, absolutely. What a big asset. Yeah, and they host a lot of events, yeah. Halloween, Christmas, yeah. New Year's, all of that. Um, so you come to Long Beach sort of because you want to create a, a happy medium between where you are living and working and visiting family. And but you've developed a family of your own in Long Beach. Tell us more about that. Uh, in 2009, I met my now husband, Galvencio Marquez. Uh, he uh, has been such uh, uh, an amazing man in my life. I'm very fortunate to have uh, come across him. Um, coincidentally, at the time when we met, we were only living maybe three blocks away from each other and had never really... Uh, run into each other that we know of. And, um, you know, eight years later, we, we got married. We got married this past summer. It's a beautiful ceremony down in Rosarito, Mexico. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And, um, yeah, it's been, you know, many, many of our uh, couples, both gay and, and heterosexual, uh, mentioned to us prior to our wedding um, that, you know, that changes a lot. And I didn't necessarily understand what they meant, but now having gone through our wedding and really living out our marriage, Mm -hmm. uh, there is for us, for us, you know, everyone has different, you know, perspectives, but for us, it's been, it's been significant and it's really solidified uh, our union with one another marriage. You know, as you speak about Galencio, I think about when I first, met Galencio and seeing you guys together and visiting your place in Long Beach and you guys have always been amazing hosts quite welcoming and my husband Joel and I were driving back home from Long Beach having spent some time with you last weekend and we were both just talking about what a privilege it is to know both of you because individually you guys are both great genuine uh, people kind and giving and warm uh, the list goes on right but you're you're sort of equals in that regard as well you know you you complement each other in a sense that when you're together there there's like it makes sense you know um and it's a beautiful experience to witness the dynamic between both of you and and um i remember being invited 
to Gaudencio's birthday party, I mean, many years back, I don't know if you remember this, but you sent out a message, hey, I'm going to create this video for Gaudencio, can you, uh, you know, can you send a text with a video message, because I'm going to thread these all together, and then at the dinner, you played this video where a whole bunch of us were wishing him a great birthday, and of course, it brought a tear to everyone's eyes, right, Um, but I just think that speaks to the kind of respect and acknowledgement that you have of each other, and, you know, how does your relationship play in your decision to run for office? That's a really good question with the, what I think is a really good answer. Um, you know, I tend to know politics fairly well. You know, I've, I've always been interested in studying politics and now making the transition over to running for office. And one of the key points in, in, in making that jump to actually run is ensuring that I have the support of uh, my husband and also my extended family. And over the winter break, which it tends to be a relative quiet time for us. We're both educators, so it's relative, right? It's still pretty, pretty a lot, a lot of action going on. But, you know, I finally had some time to think, and that's important. I, I, when I commit to something, I commit. And so I needed that time to think. And uh, Galencio observed me going through the motions of the thinking process as, as a researcher, write everything down, pros, cons, et cetera. And organically, um, he turns to me at one point and, 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 and not that I needed the nudge, but it's important to get the nudge from uh, your husband in my case. Mm-hmm. And he says, he turns to me and he says, Eduardo, right? You know you want to do this, right? You know you want to do this. Go with that feeling. Go with that feeling. And you can do this, right? So do it. And that sealed the deal for me. I was already on the verge of moving forward, but to hear that from my husband and to see the look on his face, right, just allowed me to go forward at a thousand percent. And though I publicly announced two weeks ago, uh, those, these past two weeks, I've been working 16 to 20 hour days.
Sabor a mí 